This is Sound Heights Records Podcast, Session 27, and the song lyric of the day is by Bill Monroe. The people would come from far away, they dance all night to the break of day. When the caller hollered do si do, you knew Uncle Penn was ready to go. Late in the evening about sundown, high on the hill and above the town, well, Uncle Penn played the fiddle, Lord, how it rang. You could hear it talk, you could hear it sing. He played an old piece he called Soldier's Joy, and the one he called Boston Boy. The greatest of all was Jenny Lynn. To me, that's where fiddling began. Late in the evening, about sundown, high on the hill and above the town, well, Uncle Penn played the fiddle, Lord, how it rang. You could hear it talk, you could hear it sing. Sound Heights Records Podcast. Harmonizing life and music, growing as an artist, improving as a person, gaining insight and inspiration, conversations with world-class musicians. Welcome to Sound Heights. This is Yisrael Aryeh. I want to welcome today a very, very special guest to the podcast, virtuoso, groundbreaking musician who's been a great inspiration to me personally, the great Andy Statman. Before we get into it, I'd just like to invite anyone who's going to be in downtown Manhattan later in the evening, this coming Wednesday, October 2nd, so it's a few days away from the release of this podcast, though... That date may be relevant to those listening in the future. I have a feeling this one's going to be very special. So that's the Brooklyn Jazz Warriors Rockwood Music Hall, October 2nd. It's a Wednesday night, 11 p.m., stage one. Come and join us, check it out. So, what can I say about Andy Stepman? I first heard about him, I had just recently arrived at Yeshiva and it kind of came at a time in my life I was very ready to immerse myself in the yeshiva environment to learn Torah. I was very inspired. And I brought along my guitar. I brought along some music to, to keep me company over there, even though most of the day was spent learning. But there was some downtime, especially towards the end of the day, to play or listen a little bit. And I wrote a lot of songs in, during that time. Uh, and at one point, pretty early on when I was there, I kind of got the message that it would be of greatest benefit to me spiritually and for the sake of my studies there if I limited my musical ingestion to Jewish music. 
particularly what whatever <laughs> was considered kosher Jewish music at that time would be acceptable then. Later on, and it's something that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about, learning about, talking to people about, about that particular type of influence that a lot of people who get serious about their Judaism, about their observant Judaism, often in a Hasidic context, I think it a misconception about the role of music in the life of a of a devout Jew. But that's another topic, maybe. <laughs> but at the time, I had uh, gotten that message and started to weed out certain things that I'd been listening to, um, for better, for worse, whatever it was for that stage. But what I found was that in terms of limiting myself to Jewish music, there really wasn't that much that... I mean, I was used to a huge variety of music that for every mood and every every feeling, depending on what was going on. And when I started limiting myself, I found there was very th- few things to choose from, few things that really inspired me and and played the role that music had played before, before I started limiting it. Um, and one of the the music that came to my attention that became one of the staples during that period for me was the music of Andy Statman, because Andy had recorded a lot of traditional and non-traditional Jewish music. Um, one of the, the first album I heard was uh, Songs of Our Fathers, a great record that Andy had recorded with Dave Grisman, who was one of his early mentors, as we talk about in the interview, and later explored some more of his music. And after a couple of years in yeshiva, I got engaged uh, to get met, be married, and being very inspired by Andy's music, contacted him, found him in the phone book, contacted him about playing at my wedding, which is the best and, and pretty much the, at this point only memorable, uh, lasting memory, positive memory of, uh, of that whole experience. Andy's music at, at the wedding was amazing. And after that wedding, I struck up a, a friendship with him. We, we spent some time learning together, which was great. That lasted for, for quite a while. And uh, it was really a, a really great experience. When I had a Chabad house in Woodstock, he came up and played a couple times, um, and that was really amazing too. And all along the way, he's been performing, he's been recording, just a great plethora of amazing music of, of a huge variety, both being both an expert of mandolin and clarinet, and having a real command of both of those instruments and being able to, to write these amazing tunes and, and creating this music that is at the same time, has a lot of dimensions to it, very spontaneous, but also something um, really richly structured as well. Um, and just, you know, almost like a, like a surgeon of music. <laughs> Andy has, has this incisive, powerful style that really cuts through. It's, it's full of... of intelligence, but also joy and, and warmth. Uh, and I highly recommend there's, I mean, he has many albums, I think at this point, at least 20 albums in his own name. And he's been also played on uh, many, many other albums. And he plays live regularly. Highly, highly recommend going and, and checking out Andy live as great as he is on recordings. He has, there's a real energy and spontaneity to his 
live performances that you doesn't get old. You could see them over and over again. Um, it could be a you know go on Andy tour <laughs> would be something that would sound sounds good to me. But it was uh, really great to reconnect with him for this interview, and we um, discussed you know, reigniting our learning, especially in the topic that I'm most interested in within the realm of Torah, which is Hasidus applied to music. And uh, I'm very interested to hear more of his take on these concepts. He shares a lot in this conversation. Um, I mean, there's, we could could have talked for <laughs> felt like for a lot longer, but he has so much to share. He was a young teenager already cutting his teeth in the Greenwich Village uh, folk revival scene. And his initial deep dive was into bluegrass, particularly a Bill Monroe-style mandolin. But then he shifted, he took up the saxophone, he got into some of the far-out jazz that was happening then in the late 60s, Albert Eiler, he mentions in particular, um, a number of other influences. And then somehow segued into playing traditional klezmer clarinet and uh, apprenticing under the, the legendary Dave Terrace, who really was a keeper of that tradition. And Andy is one of the few keepers of that real klezmer tradition. But there was a, a real klezmer revival, I guess, starting in the late 70s that Andy was a, a catalyst for, as well as a big part of. And these multiple streams, the bluegrass, the avant-garde jazz, and the traditional Jewish music, really, it's a very unique combination. Andy talks about how early on, he had heard from Bill Monroe that there was a, a conscious effort on his part to combine certain musics, um, fiddle tunes, blues, country music, and created bluegrass, which is now blossomed to a major genre in, it, in itself. And in that very similar way, Andy Statman has kind of created his own genre. If you go through his discography... You can definitely find tunes that are like straight up bluegrass, ones that are straight up traditional klezmer, ones that are pretty avant-garde jazz. But a lot of the stuff, especially in his more recent records, really you, you, you these streams cross <laughs> within the same tune. And it's really an amazing experience, this music. So before we get to the interview, I just want to thank our patrons for supporting this podcast and all our activities here at Sound Heights Records. Please join our ranks. Go to soundheightsrecords.com slash Patreon. There's a lot of rewards there, a lot of unreleased tracks. We keep adding more. A few pre-release tracks as we create them here. And uh, just the, the joy of, of supporting and encouraging more music in the world. As music can really bring a transformative joy and liberation, a personal redemption, a global redemption. So stay tuned after the interview for, uh, we'll play a, a complete tune from Andy Statman's most recent album. We're listening to an excerpt of it now, and we heard a little bit at the beginning of the episode, the album Monroe Bus. So here it is without further delay my conversation with Andy Statman.
listening to 78 records, mm -hmm. like a Yiddish theater tune, Yassel, Ayayay Yassel. I guess on the other side was uh, the Gruny Casino. I think probably Dave Harris was playing on that. Um, and um, a song, I think it might have been by Paul Whiteman called um, Three O'Clock in the Morning, which was a popular waltz back in probably the teens or early 20s. Um, and then there was one song, like a comedy Jewish-oriented song, called "There's No Hot Water Way Up in the Bronx." Up in the Bronx, in the Bronx, there's one. You know, there used to be a real schlep to go up there. Um, so those are sort of my earliest musical memories. After that, it's I remember when, uh, and since so then I was probably two or three. The, you know, those were records that were your parents belonged to your parents. My, that, that was my, what they're listening they, they, to. Yeah, they're, they're my parents' records, and and uh, some probably my grandfather's, mm -hmm. and uh, who lived with us, my father's father, and um, my mother always sang to me. So you know, I remember you know that. And um, what would she sing? You know, pop tunes and maybe some some like sort of uh, Yiddish thing, you know, type of thing she heard from her mother. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I'm trying to think of. Um, you know, I remember when. Well, I, I, there's always like Broadway show music in the mm -hmm. house, so I heard that. I heard classical music. Um, I remember when Rock Around the Clock came out and when, like, Hound Dog and, you know, the Everly Brothers and, you know, Great Balls of Fire and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, at that point, I was already five, six. You know, I, was, I had much more, you know, more awareness than when I was three. Um, but there's always Broadway music and classical music. And, you know, on the radio, there'd be, like, the Mills Brothers and there'd be... Uh, you know, some, you know, big band jazz and, um, oh, and then what I do remember was that um, they used to have, and you know, maybe Max Fleischer, they were um, the, uh, the Farmer Gray cartoons, mm -hmm. uh, which had no sound, and they put incredible soundtracks to it. So some of them were like Joe Venuti and Eddie Lang. Some were fiddle tunes. Some, you know, some was uh, classical music. Um, all sorts of different types of really great music. And then there were the, the ones, um, the, uh, you know, great scores for the Bugs Bunny. And then, you know, like Heckle and Jekyll and the, and the others, they sounded like, um, what's the name of... Um, you know, they, they were like s small jump bands, sort of mm -hmm. swing bands. What's the name? Kirby, um, you know what I'm talking about, who had like a, a great sextet back in, in the 30s. John Kirby was named. Um, Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby, maybe, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I heard, you know, and then the, the, the across the street there was the, the, um, the Chinese Laundry, which, which always blasted the Cantonese opera. I mean, you know, I, I, I was always hearing lots of different types of music. This was in, in Queens? Yeah, in Jackson or? Heights, Jackson yeah. Heights. I, was, I was born in 1950, so it was the, the 50s, you know. And, I mean... So we're exposed... So that was mostly records, the music you heard around. Were you exposed radio. to live music early on? Do any, any family members play? Family members did, yeah. I mean, like I, I, on my mother's side, I come from like a, a family of um, Hazan and, mm -hmm. and uh, players and composers. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what influenced you 
to pick up an instrument? Like, at what point did you decide that you? Well, I, you know, I heard, I, you know, I, I loved, um, you know, like World War II was still very present mm-hmm. in in the culture then, even though it was at the beginning of the Korean War, you know. But uh, you know, everyone's parents were veterans, and you know, there were army clothes and knapsacks and things guys brought back from the war and. You know, you saw all these these cartoons, you know, and Popeyes from World War Two, and all mm-hmm. the, you know, it, it was, you know, depicting scenes in World War Two. So it was, uh, um, it, it was very much there. So I really liked the bugle. Mm-hmm. So I sort of, um, I have a cousin who played, uh, excuse me, who had a bugle in his house. Mm-hmm. So I really, you know. I started playing this bugle, and then I started taking trumpet lessons, and then, you know, the it, it didn't really... Um, I just wanted to play bugle, not, not like, sort of go to school. I wanted to have fun, not go to school. And uh, I said, my uncle was on the other side of the building, was a good classical piano player, and he also used to play, uh, like, folk songs on the piano. So I heard that, that stuff a lot. So I heard a lot of Mozart, Beethoven... <clears throat> when I went up to his house, um, and uh, then we had a piano, and I used to sort of play free music on the piano, and uh, you had a piano in your house growing up. Well, they got a piano so I could take lessons, mm-hmm. like a, not you know a cheap upright piano. Yeah. Someone gave it to us actually, and um, so I. Um, you know, I would, you know, the John Thompson method, you know, one of these old yeah, methods, sure. yeah. which had some very endearing types of songs initially. And then when, it, when, when the music reading became more sophisticated, you know, I, I could memorize the tune by ear and I had no interest in it. I just wanted to play. I didn't want to read. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to have a good time with it. And they were talking about a recital. And so I just stopped the whole thing because, it, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, I just, I used to just play and not, you know, make up my own songs and just play freely, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, piano lessons were not about that. Right. So it, it just became another form of, of going to school, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, and that, you know, I wasn't, you know, that was regular school was more than enough for me. Yeah. So, uh, so um, when I was um, around 10, 11, um, my brother was in college. He's about eight years older than me, and he was bringing home... Uh, you know, records by the, the like the folk revival by the Kingston Trio mm-hmm. and the Limelighters and um, you know Chad Mitchell, true groups like that. And I like that, you know. So I listened to that, and then he started bringing home um, records by like Bob Dylan and Dave Van Ronk and and other people. And in the midst of this, he brought home um, some records by uh, a group called the Nula City Ramblers. Yeah. You know, John Cohn just Cone, that, yeah. yeah. So. You know, I guess it was their first volume, and a group by the Greenbrier Boys, which was, uh, you know, had Ralph Rinsley, you know, he was. He, I, I've heard of the Greenbrier yeah, yeah. Green Boys. Yeah. So, so, and um, and the, the most important was a record called Mountain Music Bluegrass Style, which Mike Seeger put together for Folkways, which was a compilation of um, all these great bluegrass musicians living in the Washington, D.C. and Baltimore area, you know, in the, in the late 50s, early 60s. It was a real hotbed of, of great music. And my brother was also in, in, a, in a jug band. So they used to mm-hmm. rehearse at our apartment. And, uh, you know, you know, I, I heard, you know, banjo, guitar. I fell in love with the banjo, but we had a guitar in the house. 
and um, I brother played guitar, so I I um, I was already listening to um, you know like bluegrass or country music radio stations. There's one that I could get every night uh, from Wheeling, West Virginia. It's a fifty thousand watt station, WWVA, mm-hmm. and on. Uh, Saturday nights, they would have a, a Grand old Opry-type show. I mean, that they're, they're one of the big ones. They're in, uh, uh, WSM in Nashville, the Grand old Opry, was, was one of several. I mean, there were many, actually. So um, there's a guy named Doc Williams in the Border Riders who was a, you know, sort of a traditional country singer, not honky-tonk country, who played, he um, mainly played in, in the Midwest and, and Canada. Um, uh, and uh, he had a guitar method, so I sent away for that. <clears throat> and uh, you know, after you know, after my bar mitzvah, I had enough money to go buy a banjo, so I started. You know, I got a banjo and started studying banjo. And um, I started going down to Washington Square. You know, back in those days, there there were hundreds of musicians. You know playing in different groups around the fountain on Sundays, you know, from the, uh, you know, mid-spring until the, you know, mid-fall, mm-hmm. and every Sunday. And uh, there'd be groups, one group would be playing old-time music, one bluegrass, one blues, one, you know, like topical songs, you know, the political songs, different, different, you know. Um, so I started meeting musicians, and... Uh, you know, there were there were a lot of. I was an okay banjo player. There were a lot of really great banjo players, but I, I started listening more and more to the mandolin, and I really liked it. There were mandolin players down there as well, but I decided I was going to make a switch to the mandolin, and that's when things really started kicking in. Were you? Were you? You must have been one of the younger. Yeah, I was usually the youngest. Yeah, yeah, I was the youngest. Yeah, huh. at that point, I was, I was the youngest. Now, in many cases, I'm the oldest. Back then, I, I, was, I was the youngest, and um, you know, there was a. You know, there were like a few generations before me. The generation immediately before me was like David Grisman mm-hmm. and um, and Bill Keith and, and a guy named Winnie Winston, who's no longer alive. The lady has gone. Fred Weiss, um, Gene Lowinger, you know, played with Bill Monroe, Steve Arkin. I mean, there are a whole bunch of, of great guys. And then there was the, that, that, that other group like Eric Weisberg and... Um, his contemporaries, Marshall Brickman, and then even before that, there was with the sort of the Pete Seeger generation. There was it's a guy named Roger Sprung, yeah, still alive. My father, he used to take me to bluegrass festivals. I remember seeing Roger Sprung a couple of times. I think so he really liked him. Roger was the was the sort of the first person I think you know at least in the New York City area to to learn how to play Scrug style. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was probably the late forties. And that style was just it was just beginning back then. So he knew early on, and he was actually a guy who introduced a lot of um, very adventurous. He started doing Broadway show tunes on the banjo, and you know all sorts of different types of music. He was he was always pushing the envelope. Um, but anyway, so that so I started getting in bands, you know, with with guys who were older than me, you know, college students, and. Um, I wound up, uh, you know, you know, 15, 16, you know, going down to Virginia for like the first bluegrass festivals or, you know, there was a place in uh, rural Pennsylvania called um, Sunset Park. 
And every Sunday, you know, in the spring and summer into the fall, they had like a covered stage and, and a somewhat covered audience where it was open on all, all ends. And they'd have, you know, Bill Monroe, the Osborne Brothers, Jimmy Martin, you know, a different group each week. And they had a home band, which would open up. And then everyone was picking out in the field. So I got to meet a lot of musicians. Mm. And I mean, that's how I first met Vassar Clements. Um, he's working with Jimmy Martin. You know, it's about 15. So, um, and then there were there were these bars in New Jersey, the Starlight Grill in Manville, New Jersey. And there were a lot of transplanted, transplanted Southerners there. And there'd be a, a lot of named bluegrass acts that would play there, you know, standing behind the bar. And that would let me in. I'd have a Coke and a hamburger and no one would card <laughs> me or, you know, I was just, I knew the musicians, so they... You know, so uh, were you still in school at this point? I mean, you, yeah, I was. I was in high school. I was all I, uh, but I wasn't in high school. Right. I would. I would basically, <laughs> you know, I would. I would play hooky and then you know learn Bill Monroe or Jesse McGrenell solos. I'd spend all day practicing, and uh, you know, um, it, you know, it, was, it, it created a bunch of tension with me and my parents. You know, mm -hmm. but. Um, I was just, you know, I was actually training myself to become a professional musician, so to speak, at, at that point. Not, was that not very conscious to you? Yeah, what I wanted to do was, uh, you know, and as 15, 16, I wanted to be able to go down to Nashville and, and join one of the bands. Mm. And, uh, you know, then I began, you know, in 16, you know, there, were, there, was, there was a group of people in Bluegrass who were um, listening to other music and... Um, you know, being very innovative, and I was I was very influenced by that, and uh, turned on to different music, and I particularly began listening to uh, a lot of different types of jazz, and uh, you know, everything from like I said, you know, Django and Stephen Grappelli and Eddie Lang and Joe Venuti, to you know, to Coltrane, you know, to Mingus, to, you know, and uh, I began to feel. Um, that in bluegrass is a very deep and wonderful instrumental tradition, but the deepest tradition is in some ways is the vocal tradition, particularly the gospel songs. Mm -hmm. And and I'm not a singer, you know. I, I I'm not I can sing, but I really I'm not really a good singer. And um, and I was an instrumentalist, so I felt that there'd be you know some riches there I couldn't really do. And, um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't a Christian mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I was, I developed, you know, by the time I was about, I don't know, 16 and a half, getting close to 17, I had learned literally thousands of mandolin solos and starting to develop my own language. But, um, I was getting more and more into listening to jazz and, uh, then I heard on radio, um, this record, Albert Eiler in Greenwich Village. Mm -hmm. Um, where on that record, interesting, it's Coltrane's birthday, and we're talking about this. Coltrane, I think, was in the audience for that. Hmm. It was live, I think, at the Village Vanguard, and he had with him, like, a, you know, a violinist, and, you know, it was, he basically wrote either sort of, they sound like Salvation Army, or Church Hymn, or Balkan, simple Balkan themes, and they'd play though these these very heartfelt themes with a sort of a, you know, free 
rhythm section, you know, exploding drums behind them. And then they'd go into sounds. There'd be this repetitive thing they do over and over, and then each would take a solo, go into playing, you know, colors and sounds. You know, I was like just about 17, and to me, this was, you know, wow. Mm -hmm. You know, this, the, the energy and the whole expressiveness of it. I said, yeah, this is what I want to do. So I said, I want to get into jazz. Um, and I decided rather than go to guitar or violin, I thought that with a breath instrument, I could express certain emotions that I couldn't on a string instrument. I still played mandolin, and I was scared also that if I played a string instrument, I'd be expressing bluegrass ideas mm. on those, so I wanted to make a big break. So, um, uh, which is, you know, for a kid 16 and a half, almost 17, it's, it's, it's actually a pretty good, you know, interesting analysis, yeah. you know, back then. So, um, well, I mean, good, talking about your analysis, so if, yeah. you, if you initially you started out and you put all that work into essentially mastering the mandolin and getting to that well, level. Not man, not well, not so not mastering, but well, getting to a level of professional. An average, and, yeah. you know, uh, musician's perspective. But, but essentially getting to a certain, because you, if you, your goal was to, to go play in, in Nashville and Nashville groups, yeah. then you had this kind of, I guess, thinking about it in terms of uh, career terms, like this yeah. is something you're going to really do and really so yeah. was it, did you have that calculation that, well, if I'm starting over completely, or had you had some experience with, with the saxophone before? Or you, or you no. knew that you could, you knew that you knew how to learn an instrument because you applied those, that effort to mandolin, you knew you could apply it to saxophone. The guitar and the banjo set me up for the mandolin. Mm -hmm. it, it strengthened my fingers and I had some knowledge of style. But when I got into the mandolin, I really got into Bill Monroe and some other people who I hadn't. And that's really where the, the, the super-duper heavy-duty stuff is, or, or a lot, most of it. Mm -hmm. And um, when I got in, into... Um, you know, started listening to jazz. Um, I mean, blue. You know, Bill Monroe always said, who, who was like the the father of bluegrass, so mm -hmm. to speak. Um, he consciously put certain elements together in, in, in a conscious mix, and um, he said like that. Bluegrass is really a great school if you want to go on to do other things, because mm -hmm. you'll learn all the basic elements of uh, of, of music and improvisation if if, if you uh, if you really learn how to play bluegrass well. So. Um, and bluegrass is sort of a super duper, like it's a home run hitting music. Mm -hmm. Everything is intense <laughs> yeah. by and large. The, yeah. the real good bands, intense. And that's what Albert Eiler was in Coltrane or mm. Bird or Monk or, you know. Yeah. So um, I. Uh, so anyway, so I was moving in this direction and. Um, you know, I, David Grisman was sort of my mandolin mentor. And uh, I had taken, he had a, a sort of a teach yourself method, method and he would, you'd go, I'd ask him a question, he'd show me what I want to know. And, um, and then he'd have, he'd had an archive of all these live shows or, or 45s and 78s you couldn't get of Bull Monroe and all mm. these other bluegrass greats going back to the 40s. Um, you know, hundreds of hours of stuff, and you'd say, you know, I'd have to bring my big reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder and attach this. He said, why don't you record this and this and this? And he would leave, and he said, lock the door when you leave. You know, he lived down in the in the, um, in the the village, mm. um, you know, in like one of these cold water flats where there's one bathroom for the floor. Mm. And uh, so I would... Um, I'd record, you know, four or five hours worth of music and go home, and, uh, you know, after about two, three months... I'd have a few, you know, a bunch of questions, come back, 
and I say, how do you do this? And, and he'd show me, and I'd say, oh, that answers a bunch of other questions. That means you can do this and this and this. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah. And so then, you know, we'd leave and tell me what to record. So um, I took about four or five lessons in the course of about two years, two and a half years. And um, I remember he was in, came back. He was already living in San Francisco. He came back to New York. This was right around, uh, it was late spring, probably uh, 67. Mm-hmm. And I think it was when, it might have been the day that Sergeant Pepper came out. And, um, you, you know, Peter Siegel, you know, was like a record producer, worked for Nansa. She produced lots of, uh, he did like Skip James and all these other people. And he, he did a lot of, um, you know, great recordings. Anyway, we went up to his house and he had headphones, which I had never seen in person. And, you know, you know, we listened to Sgt. Pepper and... Uh, and David told me that he had sold all his, his uh, bluegrass records and, and was just playing, um, you know, was just going to do this, this, this sort of uh, thing called Earth Opera that he and Peter Rowan had, like one of, this, one of these, these rock groups. And they were moving up to Boston, mm-hmm. where, where Rowan was originally from, that area. So, um, so I said, yeah, I'm going to do it also. So I, I, I sold my, my, the good mandolin I had, and, and I sold... Um, uh, you know, my bluegrass records, and we had an old alto sax in the house my brother used to play. We got it fixed up, and a friend of mine named Mark Horowitz um, uh, has a brother named David Horowitz. I don't know if you've ever heard of David Horowitz. The name sounds familiar, he, but... He, he's now, I mean, he has a huge... He's written thousands of jingles and soundtracks. Mm-hmm. He has like a whole huge office in Midtown Manhattan. Um, but he was—he—he he is he's an incredible jazz piano player, and you know he could play like back then, just like Monk or McCartney or all this stuff. And you know, so I asked him to recommend a saxophone player, and he recommended this guy Richard Grando, mm-hmm. who was, um, you know, who'd learned basically a lot from Sonny Stitt. And, um, you know, was part of that beat generation from upstate New York. And, um, you know, was very into the whole sort of Coltrane thing and, and, and spiritual thing. He was like an, an expert on Carl Jung and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And he was very much into the American Indians and their spirituality, you know, and all this stuff. And so I remember he said, uh, you know, come over and we'll talk. I'll see if I want to teach you. Mm-hmm. And, and the first lesson was, you know, do you believe in God? Do you believe that God exists? That was the first mm-hmm. lesson. We spoke for about two hours. He said, okay, I'll take you as a student. And then I was sort of almost like, been biased there for a number of years. What, what did you answer him at that point? Well, I I couldn't I didn't I didn't know what to answer because I wanted to study with him and I didn't know what the, I wanted to give the right answer, the right answer. that would <laughs> enable me to um, to take lessons. And I said I'm, I'm not yeah I don't know I'm not quite sure you know I, I don't you know but he was a firm believer in God so yeah. you know he came down and and uh, but anyway so I was you know. Um, you know, I'd go there for, you know, a lesson, which would be, you know, I'd eat dinner there, I'd be there for four, five, six hours. I was living with my parents back then in Bayside, so I'd have to take a bus to the beginning of the um, the 7 train. Mm-hmm. 
And so that was already like a half hour to 40 minutes. And then take the 7 train um, and change uh, for another train, the F train, to go out to Park Slope. So it's going to be about two hours to get there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're that age, it's, it's really sort of nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd be just there, you know, for hours and hours and hours. And, um, you know, it, it, it really gave me a vision of sort of, um, you know, what I want, you know, where to go. Um, you know, he got me interested in, in, in spirituality, which also ultimately led me, you know, in, into sort of exploring my own Judaism and, and uh, my Jewish roots, my family roots. Um, and it also got me into uh, different types of world music, which which got me into, because um, everyone in jazz was listening to all sorts of different types of ethnic, ethnic music back then, which got me back into hearing... Um, um, you know, researching, you know, the, the Jewish music. The, the one th- one thing I forgot to mention was that there was a, a record of klezmer instrumental tunes that Mickey Katz put out yeah. with some great uh, studio musicians from uh, out in Hollywood. Um, it was called Music for, what is it called? Brisses, Weddings, Brisses, and Bar Mitzvahs. <laughs> and um, Weddings, Bar Mitzvahs, and Brisses. <clears throat> And it was just a bunch, you know, Freilux and other, you know, it was just a great, great record, still is. And at, at family gatherings on my father's side, you know, they, they were Ukrainian, the Russians, mm-hmm. we used to dance to all that stuff. Yeah. So I started re-exploring that stuff with the idea of using it as, as heads for like Albert Eiler type things, mm-hmm. you know, back when I was 18, 19. And, you know, so anyway, I mean, a lot, a lot of a lot different of things elements, were happening yeah. simultaneously. Well, so, so Richard Grando... So what was his, the, I mean, he, he had all that time. I mean, what was he, like he, he was, was uh, he, he, um, he was, he couldn't really, um, jazz in, at that time, 67, 68, 69, so jazz was like, um, having a really rough time. Right. <laughs> and, um, he said, you know, the only, as it is now, in many, it's in some ways it's better now because of all the education gigs. But he said that um, he said very few white musicians um, could could make it unless you were. He said if if you were from Europe, you'd have a better chance, mm-hmm. you know. But if you weren't from Europe, then you know this this was his feeling. Yeah. So he was working a lot in um, in. Uh, you know, um, horn sections in in um, you know rock and roll bands and disco mm. bands and um, uh, you know he was in a band that was sort of like um, it's called Air Supply, sort of like a Blood what, Blood oh, yeah. Frontiers okay, type. Of. So he mm. you know he was in that and he you know he wound up doing lots of um, sort of session work for um, uh, you know Electra. For different people there, and um, you know, he wound up playing with David Bowie and other things. Mm-hmm. But his a career as a jazz musician, to, he could he it was very difficult for him to to go out and play his own music. The, the, I mean, it's easier now, and it's probably not that easier now. So, right. So, um, did you see a path for yourself? I mean, obviously, you were absorbing things on a spiritual level, musical level, taking in all these different influences different genres that I, yes. I can see like the swirl of I mean especially that time in particular um, and then this idea that you were talking about how Bill Monroe consciously put together different elements were you were you envisioning for yourself putting together 
the different elements of music that had influenced you into something unique, as you obviously have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, back then, I mean, you know, I was, um, you know, um, a lot of musicians in the classical world um, are, are, you know, require so much practice and this and that, they don't really get to mature. Hmm. So I was just a musician from, you know, basically pre-teens and on. That was mainly what I was into, you know, so to speak. And, you know, any relationships I had was through the music, you know, so I was, but I didn't, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't get um, a chance to mature in other ways mm-hmm. um, because I was just doing music. And, and so I didn't have to, I didn't have to deal with other situations. You know, I, I um, you know, I was in college for just one term, basically, and that was, you know, that was it. Um, you went there to study music? or? Uh, well, I went to a very progressive school called Franconia. Mm-hmm. It was like um, up in New Hampshire. It was sort of like Goddard or something like that, but even more far out in some ways. And so I had like, I, of course, I had homesteading. You know, I made a Thelonious Monk tutorial, mm. this and that. It was just a joke, and I, I couldn't see wasting <laughs> my parents' money, right. you know. Mm. Um, so... Uh, and all that, you know, I, I just, you know, I practiced there. I played in some rock and roll bands and blues bands. And, you know, you know, I played some, a lot of free music with a lot of different people up there. Um, you know, free improvised music. Um, so, um, you know, I came back and... Um, well, before we got... So, so you're saying, yeah, you know, so at one point I saw, you know... I mean, I, I saw like the, the idea of a shaman was very romantic to me, very appealing, not really understanding exactly what the whole thing is. Um, I mean, the, the, but the idea of, of, of combining these, you know, spiritual music, quote unquote, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, that would combine a lot of different styles um, was something that, that, that I was interested in doing. You know, and, uh, you know, I started, you know, simultaneously studying ethnic music with a few different people, you know, the, like the classical music of Azerbaijan and then like uh, the, the music from, you know, like sort of Albania, Ypres, you know, in Greece, that style. I, you know, I studied with these great old musicians and, um, and you know, when I decided I wanted to really um, pursue, you know, what's, what, what today they call klezmer, you know, the mm-hmm. Jewish instrumental music. Um, that sort of became the focal point for me because, you know, I was at that point, I was realizing I was Jewish and, you know, this is my own heritage and, and you know, there were great musicians in Azerbaijan and, and, and in Ypres that, that will keep this music going. But there, there was basically no one that I knew of who was playing this, this old music, which is so, my goal was to become, while still playing everything else, become, you know, sound like someone, you know, you know, in Europe, mm-hmm. you know, you know, or the immigrant generation who came here. So there was one guy still alive, which was Dave Tarras, mm-hmm. who was still playing great. And, you know, I became, you know, very close with him. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I was very, you know, very lucky that way. So, um, so, so what came first to getting deeply into that music? And you picked up the clarinet at some point, obviously you switched to saxophone for clarinet. Not switched. No, 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 no. no. So I, it added, added the, I would be playing, 
you know, I'd, I'd be playing um, in, in a Jewish music string band, an old-time string band, a bluegrass band. I'd be playing mandolin in a sort of Afro-Cuban, Brazilian ensemble. I, you know, I'd be, um, you know, you know, jamming sort of free jazz in people's mm-hmm. basements. Um, you know, I, I, I was doing a lot of things simultaneously, you know, learning, you know, the Azerbaijani music. And, and you know, at, at one point, probably around when I was uh, in, in, you know, my later 20s, 27, 28, you know, I, I, I decided I have to really center on the klezmer um, as, as the main thrust of what I'm going to learn. Mm-hmm. And put other things on a little bit on the back burner, but still keep them going. Right. And um, so, you know, I was still doing, um, you know, I was still, you know, going down to Nashville to record, and you know. But I was, what happened was with the with the klezmer thing, um, all of a sudden, instead of, um, you know, back then, if you played a bar gig, you know. It started at eight or nine and went until three in the morning, <laughs> and um, you didn't get all that much money. And they were smoking, so you came home stinking of cigarettes. So there, you know, I'd be there one week with sort of like a crazy bluegrass band, and the next week there I'd be there with a sort of an R and B band playing saxophone, mm-hmm. and then I'd get sick after that, mm-hmm. you know. So, so that you know, um, and then all of a sudden I, I'm I'm starting to do these getting calls to do these klezmer gigs and they're in situations where it's a concert audience mm-hmm. and there's no smoking and I'm really getting paid some decent mm-hmm. money. <laughs> so, you yeah. know. I mean, because for most musicians it would it would be not such, you know, they usually get the advice to focus on one thing, focus on one instrument. Right. I and mean, I got that when I was in music school, I did piano and drums. And I said, you know, focus on one. You Sometimes it was from drummers who felt I was taking their ensemble spot. But in general, it's the idea if you're going to excel at one thing, um, you focus on one thing. Obviously, you've done so many different things, but I don't know if, if what you've done is in any way repeatable because of the just the degree to which you devoted to all these things on their own that, that, that you were able to to not get spread too thin, ultimately. I mean, when you could ultimately focus on, on let's say, just... Klezmer, but you still had this tremendous I, background of skills in, in these other things that you could eventually bring back. You know, well, they, they were going simultaneously. Right, right. So I would be, you know, when I was um, deeply involved in Klezmer, I was, I was still, you know, um, like I said, writing tunes for, you know, for like, you know, Vassar Clemens, you know, going right. down to Nashville to record these things. I mean, I still had my fingers in a lot of pies as I do today. So it's, it's, you can't keep everything going. It's just a question of, of the balance. The other thing also is that when I started um, playing professionally, um, I immediately got a really good high-level gig. Hmm. You know, I realized after college I had to sort of um, start making a living. So I was a messenger, and I was I worked in a delicatessen for a little bit. Hmm. But I started going at night down to the village, and um, I ran into, because uh, I still the musicians, I ran into David Bromberg, amongst mm-hmm. others, who was just put out his first record on Columbia. And you know who Bromberg yeah. is? So Bromberg was like a very highly sought after studio, you know, acoustic guitarist. Oh, he's a great electric guitarist too. And, um, you know, he played with Dylan and all these different, you know, folk people. And uh, I think George Harrison was on his first record. So he had a, um, a, a, an electric bassist with him. And, um, 
you know, I came down and played, you know, mandolin and sat, he invited me some gigs. So I mm-hmm. sat in and um, he hired me. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden I was in a band um, that was getting tour support from Columbia Records. Mm-hmm. And we were playing good venues, and that I was, was the early seventies, seventy seventy one. And I and I was yeah. and I was on uh, and I was on salary, mm-hmm. you know. Wow. And, and I you know and I always saw this um, this sort of like curtain or film between um, being a a really good non professional and being professional, mm-hmm. you know. And before I played with Bromberg, I felt you know I, I you know I, I could play, but I wasn't a professional. And after being on the road for a few weeks with David, I saw myself go through that, yeah. go through that sort of invisible curtain. But I remember the first, the first um, road tour I did with him was two, three weeks. Um, you know, I had a girlfriend here in New York. You know, um, how'd I go? And uh, you know, we we get there the, the night before the gig, and and we go down to this this club. And who's there is is like John Hartford and Vassar Clement. Mm. So I get to see them and sort of see Vassar and then some bluegrass people I knew from my early teen days in Chicago. And then we go after that, we go see, do you ever hear the group Mother Earth and Tracy Nelson? I've heard of them. So Tracy Nelson is one of the, the great sort of unheralded singers, you know, out of out of the, uh, the 60s and that sort of, um, you know, you know, she was a much more controlled and finer singer than Janis Joplin, but just as explorative and just as um, emotional. Mm-hmm. And, she, you know, they had a whole band with the horn sections. We went down to see them play, you know, I, you know, and I was just sort of like, I was in, the, I was in my 20, you know, I was just maybe 20. And, um, you know, her and her manager sort of took Took me under their wing because mm. that you know I, you know I was amazed to meet her because I had you know I listened to their records mm. I was a big fan, and um, and I met some guys from there was a a, a, a blues band there called the Siegel Schwal Blues Band mm-hmm. blue, which was so the, the you know the um, so I met you know those guys and the drummer who were down there to see it and um, we did this gig the first week we opened up for no. Either we opened up there, they opened up for us. I'm not sure who, for Randy Newman, and the second week was with Cheech and Chong. <laughs> and, and I think it was Monday nights off, and the, 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 you know, the drummer from the blues band invited me to go to like one of these Blue Mondays, so we moved down to Chicago's, uh, was in the West Side. And I saw like, you know, Mighty Joe Young and Johnny Little John, mm-hmm. and a, a bunch of other really incredible, incredible blues people. Um, you know, in that environment, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, so it was great. But, you know, after three weeks, you know, it started getting grueling. And then, you know, I was with David on the road for a year. And, um, you know, I wasn't, I enjoyed it, but there's so much downtime on the mm-hmm. road. And then I formed a band with, um, you know, the, the, like some, the, um, some very innovative bluegrass musicians mm-hmm. called Breakfast Special, which was playing, we were playing rock and roll and bluegrass in Hawaiian and very adventurous mm-hmm. bluegrass, you know, a lot of different stuff going on simultaneously. We were on the bluegrass circuit and the bar circuit. Um, we were on the road a lot. And, uh, you know, in fact, Steve Martin opened for us. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, also the, the the Buckingham Knicks, which became you know Fleetwood Mac right. opened for us once yeah. you know, down in the village. Anyway, the um, you know by the time that band ended, I was just you know you know I got off the road pretty much for you know you know I moved to Brooklyn and got off the road for eight nine months, and then Vassar asked me to join his band, so yeah. I moved down to Nashville and played with him, and then. After a few months, I just I, I came back to New York and, you know, I met my wife-to-be. And, and I, you know, once I got married, I, I really started limiting. Um, I, I wanted to be able to, you know, play music and play what I wanted to play, but, you know, be able to be in town more and, and you know, and have a wife and kids. Mm. So and once my kids were born, I began limiting, you know, my time on the road even more. And, uh, was that before before you started to develop in, in your Jewish practice? No, around, no, around I, the same time? I was I was already developing, mm-hmm. um, you know, since since I was about 17, 18, really, I really mm. started getting interested in it and moving slowly. And um, did you have a mentor? And in, in... well, there, there was a Rav, uh, Rabbi Yaakov Pollock, who who was just nifter, you know, just died. Um, you know, sort of in the beginning of the summer, who I went to his young Israel when I was a little kid, and he used to sing Nugunim for us. Mm. And, uh, you know, I remember the, the Gunim, and everyone would be in ecstasy when he sang yeah. them. So it was, but he, he was a really amazing, amazing person um, in a lot of ways, which I won't get into. But anyway, I mean, after I dropped out of college, I went to see him, and uh, he sent me out to Lubavitch, 770, with, mm. with a letter, you know, and... Uh, he had written a letter to the Rebbe. I, I don't know to who there. He was. He was. Um, he was very. He was a big disciple of, uh, like Rabbi Kamenetsky, mm. the Torah Vadas guy. But he also did a lot of stuff in Russia, for Lubavitch and other people. He said he was wanted by the KGB. Mm. He. Um, so. He, you know, he, he sent me to go to Lubavitch. So. Um, this was when seven seventy was maybe a third of the size it is now. Mm-hmm. And um, so I go out there. It's it's a Friday afternoon in the winter. I give them the letter, and and they take me, uh, you know, and they um, they put on film and whatever. And then people start asking me, uh, "What are you gonna do for Shabbos?" And I say, you know, I know, yeah, I'm, I'm going home. They say, well, you know, how long does it take to get home? I said, about two hours. They said, no, you can't do it. You can't, you know. So I, I call up Rabbi Pollock, like sort of slightly panicked, you know, saying, you know, what should I do? They, they, they told me I can't go. You know, I could have just left, but I felt I could. For some reason, I felt I had, a, you know, you know, I thought he would give me some sort of um, head to some sort of dispensation, say, oh, you know, just go home, you know. Mm-hmm. And all he said was he didn't address any of my concerns. He said, said, said keep your eyes open, listen, and, and try and learn what's going on and what you're doing there. Mm-hmm. Learn from the experience. Wow. And that was it. So they, um, they took me to where, I guess, there's a dorm for Bukharim, and they gave me a pair of tzitzis, and someone took me to the mikvah. And um, and then I, I ate with two different families. They took me for the Shabbos davening at night. I remember everyone standing by as the Rebbe walked in. So it's a narrow, it's pretty narrow. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Rebbe was, you know, completely accessible back then. You know, in 1968, you know, the end of 1968. 
And um, a few months later, me and my cousin went back. We both got a pair of tefillin. I started putting on tefillin. Um, anyway, it, it, it's, uh, so that was my first Shabbos, and I, I learned a lot. I, I really, you know, from my limited understanding of, of what was going on, I, you know, I, I understood things on my level. And, uh, you know, I had a great, you know, appreciation for what, for what was going on there. You know, particularly, you know, going to the mikveh before going to, to shul on Shabbos and the sun's going down and you have this, this, this beautiful feeling of like just having gone to the mikveh, Shabbos, whatever, mm-hmm. and your nice clothes and you're going to, you know, it's, 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 you know, my understanding then was that you sort of really, and I guess now you're really sort of setting yourself up for a, uh, you know, an amazing experience yeah. if, if you're open to it. So, um, Did you have contact with the Rebbe? Did you personal contact? No, no. The only contact I had with the Rebbe was on uh, when they gave out dollars. And, and I know when my wife went there, you know, she spoke to him for a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, um, did you, how did you feel in terms of your, your music career and your, your Yiddishkeit and your Jewish practice? Did you see them as kind of, this is what you do, this is your spiritual practice and this is your, your career, your artistic practice? So you saw them as, as kind of one as a connected thing that, that did one inform the other? Well, I mean, at that point, I was just getting into it. And, and you know, I, I, I read, uh, you know, I, I was reading and checking out things, and it became obvious to me that for me, you know, a, 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 Torah, a Torah approach, you know, was the approach to take. I felt it had more, um, more... Not for me, not to offend her, it had more integrity and honesty um, uh, and more depth than, than other approaches to Judaism. You know, the, 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 you know being Shomer Mitzvahs and, you know, being part of the whole Messorah tradition. Um, uh, and that's what I was looking for. Um, the, uh, but, you know, so I slowly be, began taking up Mitzvahs, I mean... When I was with Vassar Clements, I remember I was with the, the, the bus driver, was a big Texan. Mm-hmm. And uh, one time they came with, with like a, a, a spread of, of meats, you know, and, and um, none of it was kosher, but there was, amongst it was, was ham. And, he, and, and I remember, you know, I'm looking at this plate and he says, he says, you can't eat that, it's not kosher, <laughs> pointing to the yeah, ham. Yeah. And I said, you know, he's right. And at that, so it's from that point on, I never ate any pygmy, you know. <laughs> right. And and you he know, so, you know, so I, I was slowly moving, you know, to, um, you know, to take up mitzvahs, you know, um, which is, you know, I mean, you know, I think people need to move with it slowly. Mm. I mean, I don't think there's any general thing, but I think that you need to move slowly because you really have. You're taking on a whole other way of life mm-hmm. and a whole other way of looking at things, and you're actually coming into a whole other society. So some people, you know, in the from say, from community would say, you know, you're coming home, but you, you know, maybe on an unconscious level you're coming home, but you're really getting into a very different space, which you're not going to really realize what it is until you're you're living in that space for a year or two, and 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 you know. You'll, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but, I mean, you have a very unique. I mean, have, did you ever encounter? I mean, because I, I know I encountered, and so many um, Balchuvas who are musicians encounter 
uh, and maybe it's in a, in a Chabad thing, particularly, I don't know, but they encounter this, they, they try to incorporate their music into the Yiddishkeit, and then they encounter kind of the, the an encouragement to um, be suspicious of the larger music world because of its potentially spiritual um, challenges, and also that they, they have, have a hard time um, finding their place musically in the Jewish music world. I mean, obviously, you, obviously you had you had a, a particular taste for for the, the Jewish folk music that you were able to to dive into. Right. I guess that that's. Um, but with it, what was it that or did you encounter ever encounter that attitude where you got to um, you know especially someone who's learning and growing someone saying well you can't you know you can't go to bars and play music you can't you know that's not spiritually or you you would have dismissed that anyway because you were already no when, when when I was fully committed I mean I I sort of um, dismissed a lot of that mm-hmm. and and um, you know I had enough money to sort of coast for a while because I'd um, I'd sort of got um, I sort of got burnt out on playing klezmer music. It, it just became, um, it's a two-part explanation. It just became like a bunch of tunes that we would arrange. And, and, and you know, traditional Jew- Jewish music is very fragile. Mm-hmm. And um, it takes a lot of understanding how to be creative within it to not destroy what it is. Because mm-hmm. um, once you start really playing with it, it becomes the other thing you're playing with. In other words, if you take traditional Jewish melodies, Ashkenazic melodies, like, you know, or the instrumental melodies, mm-hmm. the klezmer melodies, or the nagunim, if you start altering the chords a mm-hmm. lot or altering the rhythms or altering the way you're playing them, they become what you're altering it with. They become sort of a Hebraized type of alteration of jazz or bluegrass right. or this, you know. So it's, it's you know, I mean... Um, so um, I'm trying to the, the uh, I you know I so basically as I was just saying I you know I sort of was had some money to coast and I began davening in mudgets and other chasidish yeah. and I began hearing um, you know traditional nagunim uh, which were basically identical to what they call klezmer music. Mm-hmm. And I began to see people davening with the same hand gestures that Dave Taras, the great klezmer clarinetist, mm-hmm. used to make make to me when he was playing clarinet for me. I used to sit with him, you know, we'd sit down. He was in his in his eighties. He's down for an hour and just play clarinet for me, and he'd move his hands a certain way for mm-hmm. to to emphasize things. I mean, that's that I learned a lot from you know these the, the, his body language that way. But mm-hmm. I'd see these guys were making the exact same motions. Mm-hmm. During the singing of Nagunim, or during the you know, or or the, or the regular, you know, davening, and um, you know, I began to realize that obviously, you know, klezmer music is just you know an instrumental counterpoint to to yeah. Hasidic vocal music. That's all it is. Right. So so the I mean it's I mean obviously it was a privilege to to um, have that relationship with Dave Terrace because the the vocal tradition within the Jewish world I find is very strong. I mean I, I work in yeshivas. Um, Chabad Yeshiva, they, they're big, you know, they, they teach every day, they're teaching Nagunim. Um, it's a very big, big uh, thing, and, and it's, you know, considered very important. And it's, I think it's a beautiful thing. But the instrumental tradition is like on a, 
it's not even it's, you, know, you go to chasanas and and it's and people try to match nagunim with instruments. It's like a disaster. It's like no dynamics, you know. So they take pop things. It's like every. It's just there's. It doesn't feel. Doesn't have the 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 the, the kedusha or the the the, the warmth right. that nigan does. And you know, from, it's very rare to hear to hear it actually done well. Well, the the, the um. Yeah, I mean the 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 way to accompany those tunes is with people who under, understand how to play traditional Jewish instrumental music, which was which was you know the counterpoint to that. Dave Taras came from a Hasidic family, you know, um, almost all the great klezmorim came from Hasidic families. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, in fact, Dave did a lot of the first you know Chabad weddings. Mm-hmm. Um, right, so those weddings back then obviously had a different flavor. In the weddings now. Yeah, no, he played for the Friedrich Rebbe many <laughs> right. times. He played for this Rebbe. You know, I saw pictures of him with Moshe Feinstein. And stuff. You know, amazing. I mean, it, what is your experience, uh, you know, obviously knowing that music, playing that music, and the, let's say, you know, you go to a standard simcha around, you know, I mean, the, the I know for, I just, for, I, for myself, a lot of Balchivas people, but not just Balchivas, I mean, it's, it's uh, there's a, there seems to be a musical disconnect in, um, Whereas the music serves a purpose, and people are dancing and they're and they're happy because obviously it's a wedding or it's whatever simcha, but the music you take the music out of that context, and unless someone grew up with it, unless somebody has a nostalgia for it, it's uh, it doesn't do the typical things that music you know. It, well, it's 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 lost. It, I mean, a lot of um, you know, it's it's a different thing, and 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 at a chasana, you know, the real kedusha is in that. In a circle mm-hmm. around the chasen, you know, around the kala, um, the music is almost irrelevant mm-hmm. because basically, you know, the, the, there's I think amongst a lot of the the, the, the they want um, they want it to be lebedic, which means loud, <laughs> loud <fast>. very loud, <laughs> fast, um, with a um, like a throbbing rhythm, yeah. <laughs> and 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 the words, you know, there has to be melodies they know, and the words, you know, I don't know if they're listening or not, you know, but they like having singers more often than not, but um, you know, I usually I, I I dance for a few minutes, you know, with earplugs, and then I leave because yeah. I I you know it's, it's I don't want to destroy my ears. I mean that's how I, that's one of the ways I make my living with my ears, right. and and it's at volume. They're playing at volumes in halls that are not made with any sort of real acoustics, and um, what they have are these. I mean, I used to go to the Fillmore. I, I you know mm-hmm. I know what loud music is. This is much mm-hmm. louder, right. and this is in a, in a much more contained area. And the thing is, is that there's really, um, the aesthetics are, um, you know, I just, you know, it's just a a whole other set of aesthetics. Um, You know, it doesn't, you know, the way traditional tunes are treated or, um, you know, or or the new tunes. Um, You know, there are some, I've heard, I mean, I don't, I have very little to do with the from music world, Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, I occasionally hear some things. I heard an interesting thing the other day by this group, Zisha, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I was, I was sort of impressed that that was interesting. And I heard some things by the, um, uh, the eighth day or something, you know, they they had some creative things. Um, I always felt that the... um, that the tools that um, 
since the, the tools that they're using to accompany the music that they write or traditional tunes they play are basically American pop tunes, mm-hmm. pop tools, instrumental pop tools, but they don't have, um, they're not really connected to the roots of that stuff. So they're taking, um, either, you know, so what happens is they, they wind up writing soon, tunes that, that really are you know, pop tunes, mm-hmm. and 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 the only thing that 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 um, musically Jewish about it might be the lyrics in Hebrew or in English. Um, there might be some melodic line that's Jewish, but I mean, like, is there such a thing as Jewish music? Yes, there's a certain type of Jewish melodic line that will evoke a feeling, and it's. Um, so, you know, when you define, how would you define Jewish music? Well, I said for Ashkenazi Jewish music, I mean. You know, you'll you, you'll know it when you'll feel it. You'll know what it is when you hear it. I mean, without a technical description, mm-hmm. um, it's a feel. I'll give you an example. There's an example I use with people. You know, the, the Jews took music from the Turks and from the Moldavians mm-hmm. and from, you know, from everywhere. Yeah. And um, but they interpreted it in a Jewish style. And they mm-hmm. knew what worked, not work. I asked Dave Taras if he how much American influence he brought in, particularly because he played, you know, the whole American songbook mm-hmm. on saxophone mm-hmm. up through the Beatles, and he. Um, he said, yeah, he says, you have to know what's going to work and what's not going to mm-hmm. work, you know, but you have to really know the traditional style to do it. Yeah. So, so these are kids who don't have any real traditional style. Right. They don't really know traditional style. Even kids who grow up singing Nagunim, a lot of them are so influenced by the pop way of singing them or the accompaniment that they really, I've, I believe, don't really understand what's going on with them. Right. I mean, so, so let's say someone has a sincere, a young person, let's say, has a sincere, or any person has a sincere desire. They, they, maybe they've been uh, acquainted with Nagunam, they, they have some knowledge in Nagunam, and they really want to approach it in, in a way that, that is, not, not just honors the, the, the Nagunam themselves instrumentally, but is kind of on par with other great musical traditions which which speak across cultures. And I think that's one of the things, again, I was, I was talking to, I mentioned, like I mentioned to you, I was talking to Benny Friedman about why does mainstream Jewish music not reach across, across cultures? And it's, you know, it's a basically, basically for some of the reasons we're talking about, maybe they're not rooted as, you know, in tradition, they're not really, maybe not that much attention is paid to the quality of the music itself, as opposed to some other factors. But if someone sincerely wants to make Jewish music that, um, let's say, even just put Nagunim to music that really speaks um, to the heart. And, re- you know, how would someone approach it? I mean, would they listen to, I mean, listen to Dave Terrace, listen to what, the things that you've done in that tradition of Rome? And anyone who comes to study with me, mm-hmm. I tell them not to listen to anything after 1930 with, with maybe, you know, a few exceptions right. recorded, you know, in the 40s or early 50s. But um, the... <laughs> The, the, the counterpart to, to Nagunim is what they call today the, the Klezmer tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and that tradition, if you're learning that, it, it has its, its own difficulties that, that, that surround it now, which didn't exist back when, mm-hmm. when I was, I was uh, you know, beginning to learn it. Um, uh, but in order... You need to be able to, to um, you know, so I'm talking about for, for players rather than singers. You need to um, 
really, under, you know, understand how to play a melody in a traditional way and bring out what's in it. You know, you really need to sort of master a tradition and then be able to find your own voice in it. And then when you hear Nagunam, you'll understand what to do with it. Mm. It, a lot of it has to do with understanding the feeling, but there's a whole thing with tone of instrument, phrasing, ornamentation. It's 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 a it's a whole ball mm-hmm, game. Mm-hmm. And but once you have that under your belt, which anyone can do if they're willing to really put in the work, then if they hear a niggin that that seems like it, it might work instrumentally, not only going to work instrumentally, mm. um, they can um, they'll know what to do with it. Right, they can apply those. And that would be. But the thing is, is that while that's powerful, you know, it has integrity and power. Um, it's. You know, what happens if a musician wants to um, not, not, you know, I'll have to turn it around, put it this way. Mm-hmm. You need to know how to do things really traditionally. And then you can sort of start, you'll know what's going to work and what's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And then you can start fooling mm-hmm. around with it. Um, and, uh, you know, have, of course, I mean, I've, I've heard, I've heard beautiful piano players who were playing basically like they would back up, um, maybe a little less gospely, but that, like that sort of, um, you know, that, that style of, um, the of chaz- piano playing. The Chazanas piano Not just, yeah. not, not yeah, well in Chazanas, but also in, on the Gunam, mm-hmm. you know, p- played very beautifully, but, um. Well, you know, uh, Thomas Dorsey, mm-hmm. who, who played blues and then became the, the, the template for gospel piano playing, mm-hmm. which was also coming out of Irish and Tin Pan Alley to be piano playing. Yeah. But that type of rich, warm, almost what you call an Americana style of piano playing. Mm-hmm. So I hear that sometimes behind like Hasidic Nagunim. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's great, but they're, they're adding chords which, um, aside from the feel, which is not necessarily a rhythmic mm. Jewish feel, they're adding chords which completely change the nature, mm-hmm. the emotional nature of the melody. Nah. You know this better than me. You can take one melody and put a- any s- different groups of chords to it, and it'll completely change the feeling of the melody. That's the thing. I have a discussion with a friend of mine who he actually has a music school in Crown Heights, um, teaches children. Yeah. And for a while, we've had long discussions. I think he's kind of come come around to... He believed that there was only a certain chords that could go with Nagunam, and they were from the Nikhoyak recordings, all those recordings that were done under the auspices of the Rebbe. There were, I think they did like 15 of them. Lipsker was involved in them. Yeah. Um, when I hear those chords, I, you know, some of them are, I think, are very work well. Some of them are, um, don't, for, you know, sometimes they're, they're too wordy, they're too many chords, and I, sometimes I think that whoever was given to arrange it are not necessarily a chassid. Um, we're just trying to be a little fancier, a little, you know, and it doesn't necessarily, you know, speak to the niggin itself. Right. And that, that one could rethink the chords in a, in a variety of different ways. Right. And, and usually, for me, this usually the simplest yeah. approach is the best. Well, it's, it's, it's a music that's not harmonically oriented. It's, it's a folk music and a modal music. And that's why I always thought, you know, by using, you know, like the Stacks Fourth and things mm-hmm. like that. That's that's what I did with Kenny Warner and some other people. Mm-hmm. You know, that 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 could work. But um, in its essence, it's it's music that's all about melody. Mm-hmm. It's in in traditional Jewish music, and I'm talking about the pop stuff with traditional Jewish melodies. You know, klezmer tunes. Um, you know, uh, you know, nagunim. Um, 
the, the the simplest way to to, to go is, is the, the fewest amount of chords. Hmm. You know, when they sang them, there were no chords. Right. You know, um, you know, if a soloist sang it, you know, there were no chords usually. Right. You know, on Shabbos Yantav in the house, or and um, it's 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 a it's a modal music that um, you know the the. Uh, you know, if you understand what chords are, see the problem is, is that the people who are also sometimes putting the chords to this, not only do they not know Jewish instrumental music and how mm -hmm. it relates to the vocal music, they also don't understand um, the roots of this, their chord changes in the style of piano mm -hmm. that they're playing. So they haven't gone back, mm -hmm. you know? So they'll play like Billy Joel or like, um, you, you, know, you know you know, what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, but they don't understand where all this is coming from. Right. So if they understood the roots of that and what, what the chords that, that, that Billy Joel are playing, where they're coming from and, and, or the feel that he's giving and what, what feelings are being inferred by those those like what traditions is he invoking mm -hmm. when he plays these these chords of the song he wrote? What is he? Where's that all coming out of? Right. And and you sort of need to know both ends of it. So I think in the firm community, I think a lot of the people who play pop music may or used to. I think it's changed. A lot of them um, uh, were not really aware of. Um, you know where where the pop style they were bringing in was coming from. And now you have people who've really studied a lot of the mm -hmm. pop styles and and um, you know know how to use it. But it's it's a it's a different type of Jewish music, right. which is which is great. I mean, I, you know, in other words, I don't think you know. I think people should express themselves, but um, if if they have a a emotional and aesthetic understanding of the material they're working with they'll 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 be able to make the right choices but if they don't then it's more hit or miss and um you know you you, you sort of really need to be based on some sort of tradition that you're coming out of whether it's a jazz tradition or a jewish tradition or a blues tradition mm -hmm. or a blue you know mm -hmm. you need to um you need to have mastered some tradition. Mm -hmm. um, in, in a nutshell, it means that if, if you've mastered a tradition, then you have an understanding of what form is, what how to play melody, how to play fast melodies and slow melodies, how to play for dances, how to play for concerts, what tone means, what phrasing means, what variation means, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know how to work with other musicians, um, how to improvise, you know, if you can do that in one tradition, when you go to another tradition, it'll be an open door mm -hmm. for you because you'll know exactly what to look for. Mm -hmm. But if, if, you don't, if you don't have a basis for something initially, um, you can't really... Um, you know, you're not going to be as well equipped to do what you do. So you'll be making um, choices that are, you know, not necessarily the best. You know, a lot of the, the, the I, I know it's not as popular as it once was. I mean, a lot of the initial Jewish sort of rock and roll things with horn section stuff, I mean, it just sounded like, you know, like, 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 a lot, excuse me, a Las Vegas show band. Right. You know, and 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 that was the aesthetic, and that's what they liked. So, but I mean, 
you know, had they been more in touch for what the, what the roots of that is, they might have been able to find something that might have fit a little bit better. Right. It's almost like the, this this self-conscious, the, the kind of the contrived approach to just combine some Jewish something with some genre, like pick any genre. But then it's not it doesn't necessarily have the, the, the spiritual Jewish feeling that they're going for. And the, the genre element is like a second rate version of that. Right. <laughs> so it you know. Right. So in, in, in a lot of people who play, quote unquote, you know, Jewish music and mix it with stuff, if they played um, the styles that they're, that they're really schooled in on the same level, heard someone playing it on, on, you know, on the level that they're playing Jewish music, they would say, what are these guys doing on stage? Because right. they have no real working knowledge of, of, of the, the two things they're doing. So it's, uh, hmm. you know, and, and if you have one person in the band who really knows and can help guide the other people just through example, if they're good musicians, they'll pick up on what to do and what not to do. Right. But... Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, that being said, you know, I, I, I think there are a lot of uh, young Jewish writers and, you know, players who um, are versed in pop music and, and, you know, where that music is coming from and, uh, and the roots of it and, um, you know, can, can make, you know, sort of in, as much of an intelligence choice as they can make. Problem is, is that the vocals in, in a lot of these cases are still limited to... Um, you know, it's 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 just a whole other thing. See, the thing is that the, in the Frum community, the music is all vocal oriented. Mm -hmm. When they talk about music, they mean the singer. They don't mean okay. the players. So there's the 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 instrumental tradition we sort of jettisoned in the Frum community mm -hmm. in America, um, partially I think because of the Yiddish theater, and and um, the. Uh, I mean, you know what it takes to become a good musician. So, you know, are you, you know, are you kids who you want to be following a certain path? You know, how much do you expose them to the outside world hmm. without them being Absolutely. attracted to that? And, and, you know, the music being part of that. And, and um, how much time do they have to practice? Mm -hmm. You need to put, you know, hours and hours a day in, in order to get anywhere. Well, essentially, uh, someone who grows up in the yeshiva system, especially a boy, right. with a little bit more r rigorous, as they get older, they kind of have to be a rebel if they're going to really devote time to right. music because they just don't have time. I mean, just the yeshiva, by the time a teenager, it goes from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. Right. And, you know, with small breaks. <laughs> and, and someone would have to essentially say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing yeshiva like that anymore and to, to devote any meaningful time to music. So the thing is this, is that it, it's... Like, I, I equate it to, um, you know, like someone who learns full-time. If, if you're going to be a good musician, mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're practicing and learning full-time music. Right. And, and um, that doesn't mean that you can't learn on the side or whatever. But if it's, if it's your parnosa, say you're studying law or a doctor or, um, you know, you, you're not a full-time learner. Right. But if, if, if uh, you're t you know, if your essence is to be a musician... Then you, you then then you got to do it. Not exclusively. You also have a wife and kids or whatever. But you, as a professional thing, you need to be hitting it. You know, five six hours a day, if, mm -hmm. if not more. Let alone going out and doing gigs. It's, 
being a musician is really a 24-hour job, let alone taking care of the business of booking or if, if you're on the road or whatever, you know, right. it's, 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 it's a whole thing. Well, uh, one of the things that, that I aim to encourage, I mean, and just to think about also from you know, the Bhavachar Rebbe's perspective and emphasis on Geula times, and there's a, um, I was mentioning to you the introduction to Sefer Hanagunim, the, the Chabad book from the 40s, which um, they say, one, they mentioned there the nature of the Jewish, um, of music in the Jewish world, in the Torah world. And they were talking about in the times of the temple and the, the peak era, that there was a society of musicians um, that were supported completely by the community. Yes, that, the that their entire yeah, job, yeah. the Levium, well, and Yisrael played also, right? They mentioned that the Levium were, were the, the main because they were the only ones who were allowed to sing. Right. But that instrumentally you could have non ah, Levium. Yeah. And that's based on the halacha, if uh, the discussion whether the main song is the vocal or the main song is instrumental, which goes back to our considerations of the Gemara, it concludes that the, the main song is vocal, which actually opens up the instrumental for someone who's not a Levi. Right. They, they were allowed to play in the base of Mikdash. But they, their entire occupation, they were supported, and they were, they're, they would just compose and study, and, and, and there was actually a place in the base of Mikdash, mm-hmm. the clo- right the, as close as you could get to the, where the Kohanim did their work, was a place where they stored instruments and studied music. The other thing I'll say, though, is that when, like, like Dovid and Melech or other people wanted to get into a state of prophecy, mm-hmm. they, didn't, they don't talk about singing. He would play right. or he'd have people play for him. Right. So as, as, as part of the avoda, mm-hmm. I guess the, the vocal was, was more important. And I don't know if they were singing words or syllables in all of this, mm-hmm. but... but the, 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 a lot of times, prophetic states were, in, were induced by the musicians right. in the base of Mikdash, which says a heck of a lot. And I know in I saw a um, in in you know stolen Carlene, you know the the um, I, I, I somewhat had, you know it's going back probably in the in the late 1800s, early 1900s. They interviewed some musicians there, whatever, talking about it, and they said that if um, uh, if that that a, a klezmer musician, if he couldn't rip out the person's kishkas with his playing, <laughs> he wasn't any good. <laughs> and and that's that's yeah. what it's all about. That's a good way to judge it. And and, <laughs> and um, so that that you know and so klezmer is really it's really it's really religious music at its essence. It's coming out of the nusach. It's coming out of Hasidic nagunim, and 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 the whole feel of it that invokes you makes you feel Jewish. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's it's a um, it's it's not the secular party music. What happened with the klezmer? Um, when people started getting interested in klezmer music. Many were just like, you know, hippies, you know, out of the mm-hmm. 60s, and they could only relate it to sort of hippie or black street culture. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they only saw the end of it here in America, where it was really just sort of deteriorating um, and um, eventually became dormant. And, um, you know, they, they didn't understand it's a Jewish party music, but not like not like party music, like you go out, you know, on Friday nights to someone's house, you know, with, you know, and, you know, or, or whatever. It's, it's a, you know, it's a simcha, which has a whole other mm. um, connotation right. than a simcha is, is a religious event. It's a, it's, a, it's a whole other, so a lot of stuff was sort of um, looked at through non-understanding eyes, which, which is completely understandable because no one had any idea. Right. You know. 
So I, I know, you know, I really appreciate all this time. I have one final question just on this note that, that I'm really interested in hearing your, your take on it, your thoughts. Have you ever thought about, maybe know a little bit, not much actually, of the music of the, 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 the Beis Mikdash, and then we've had all these years of exile and, and you know, the, the idea of the rebuilding of the Beis Mikdash. Ever thought about what music would be like in, in, in that? Have you ever, is it something that, uh, you know, would it be in... in um, I, I, I just tell you how I imagine it's like best music of all worlds. <laughs> you know, that that, the, that like you're saying the music that that can most elevate and can most, but it's it not particularly genres or specific. I don't know if that would be controversial and um, idea. But have you ever it's something that uh, ever occurred to you to think about? You know, I mean, it's uh, what it will be. And, and just what, a, you know, as, as, as a thought was, experiment, what it would be. And what it would be. Yeah, I mean, obviously knowing something about what it was. It's, 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 that, you know. That's a very inspiring idea that, yeah. you, that, that you have there. I never, I never thought about it in that way. Well, when I encounter musicians, especially, I mean, I, I you know, for you in particular, because someone who's already very deeply connect, you know, um, connected to the tradition and knowledgeable um, as like a musician in the basement, you know, I imagine someone on, on musicians operating on a very high level and they're, you know, because the idea that every day there needs to be new music, there needs to be composers, and because they can't, they're, they're not allowed, they're not allowed to bring the, the carbonus without music. That's an essential part of the, the service. So I'm just thinking, either I encounter musicians, even Jewish musicians, or you know, who are not aware of their tradition so much, but are exceptional musicians. I imagine, like you know, someday you know the, they'll uh, in, in embrace their tradition and be. Uh, yeah, or maybe <laughs> these traditions will not yeah. be. You know, I you know, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I mean, musicians ha- should do what what their heart tells them to do, and if it's if it's, it's to play, you know, wild music, play the wild music. If it's to play, you know, if you're like like a pop music, play the pop. You know, whatever mm-hmm. whatever really works for a person. Um, the, see, the other thing also is that is that in the Jewish world, um, since there is no instrumental tradition in in the religious world, and since it's um, it's been replaced by different levels of um, American pop music um, from the last thirty years, um, the, and and this music is mainly just played at. Um, at, at weddings, mm-hmm. and um, you know that's the way a lot of these guys make a living, and they can't really. Um, I mean, maybe they can experiment. You know, I see. I don't know. I, I, I always saw weddings as being a even some of these bands that get together and rehearse. You know, where are they really going with this? What's really? You see, mm-hmm. I don't know if I, I don't know if it's they enjoy playing music. It's also pronounced for them and their families, but. Um, but but great music for the sake of music. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that instrumental music. I don't, I don't think that exists. I don't think that's the goal. I, yeah. I mean, the, the goal is to make you know to, to bring simcha to have music there for the right. simcha. The goal is to make parnasa. Right. Um, I don't see that, and, and I've, the musicians I've talked to that are involved in that, it's not their goal to make music that that someone can sit down and, and close their eyes and 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 get lost into on, on their couch and you know. I don't get the sense that that's the, the purpose. It's, it's to accompany something else, which right. is a, you know, which is a role. Yeah. Um, but I think that you know, speaking to, I think it is unique in the in the religious world to have someone who's an, an instrumentally oriented, where, where the goal of music is a tra- the instrumental music is a transcendent experience. I think that, frankly, 
strangely, because in the rest of the world, it's not a, a strange thing. It's it's not a unique thing. No, you know, Beethoven, uh, Coltrane, I mean, all this I mean, stuff. Everything, yeah. you know. everything, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think you've been a, uh, an incredible force, you know, like a beacon in, in kind of a sea of darkness in that particular area. Um, you know, there, there are many great musicians in the world, but ones who, who are fusing that, um, the spirituality of, of Judaism and the innate spirituality of, of music, of instrumental music in particular, is a, is a frankly, a, you know, strangely, it's a unique thing in, in the world. I, you know, I really appreciate, uh, you've been an inspiration to me and a lot of people. Um, Thank you. Um, I don't know, you know, it's, you know, what happens is that you, you know, I mean, I got to a point, I mean, I'm still studying music and learning things and I'm, you know, I'm like, like I always did. But, um, you know, I got to a point maybe, you know, 20 years ago where, um, particularly for my, the, the, you know, I, I, um, I can write, like I just did a record down in Nashville, which was, I mean, it's still, yeah, I don't put blinders on myself so much anymore. I, you know, if I'm writing for certain musicians, I, I would write to their strengths mm -hmm. and in the styles they play. But you know, um, add some st stylistic things which, be, which would be congenial, mm -hmm. that they, you know, um, but I, you know, I, I don't worry, I just let the music happen mm -hmm. and I'm not so worried about stylistic, you right. know, boundaries or anything. To me, it's just really ultimately all about expression. If I'm playing for a Rebbe, I'm going to play the Niggin straight. If I'm playing one of my own gigs, if I feel like playing straight, I'll play straight. If I, if I don't, if I, if I feel like being more expressive in a certain way with it, I would take, I would, the melody would still be the thing, but I would still take certain liberties with it that, I, that, that to my ear would work, but which uh, a traditional crowd might just really want to hear the melody always as it is rather mm. than, you know. Um, I mean, that, that's something each person sort of has to figure out for themselves. Mm -hmm. But... Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of freedom in that. I mean, you know. Well, I, you know, I'm I, I sort of been very very lucky. Mm. So, um, you know, I've 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 been given you know a, a lot of uh, really good opportunities. Mm. You know, and um, you know, God willing, you know, they'll they'll continue. So, um, you know, uh, you know, for musicians out there, you know, getting back to one of your early questions, it's it's rough making a living. Um, but uh, you, for lack of a better way of putting it, you need to have some sort of um, normalcy to your life mm -hmm. in order to develop, to develop as a person. Mm -hmm. You know, particularly, um, you know, for a lot of, you know, musicians, you know, in, in their 20s, whatever, you know, it's like getting married is, is a really good thing to do. It mm -hmm. really helps mature the person. And... You know, musically, getting married, having kids, raising a family, dealing with the school, you know, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. its it, it only deepens the music that you're playing because it broadens your experience in life. And it, and it also gets you out of yourself um, in terms of, um, of what's going on with your music. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like you're not just a musician, you're much more than a musician. You know, you're, you're, you're a whole person and this, this is what you do. Mm -hmm. This is part of what you do, but um, uh, you know, for it to be the whole thing, I don't know. Some people, some people do do it. Some people love being on the road, even though they're married. They're you know constantly on the road, and I think it really depends on the individual. I you know I sort of I 
I, I didn't want to do it. You know, now, you know, when I go on the road, my wife can come with me, so it's, yeah. it's much nicer. But I still don't want to go on the road for any sort of long period yeah. of time, you know, unless it's something really exceptional. And, uh, you know, um, but, uh, yeah, it's a shame. I mean, see, back, you know, in, you know, in, in the 1800s, you know, the early 1900s, there was a, a, an ex, a class of, of professional Jewish musicians who were of a very high level musically. They could play, you know, light classical music, and they could play, you know, traditional Jewish, they could play all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and um, a, a lot of them were just very high level musicians, and they had their gills, and this was their parnasa. And um, that was that was a lot of the focus of their activity to be able to function on a high level as a musician, mm-hmm. and and that would help their pranasa, you know. But they they also, you know, in tradition, they they learn they learn Gemara, they learn you know, right. they they learn they dive and they lived from lives. But it it you know nowadays it seems that there's not a. Um, It's, it doesn't exist anymore, so it's it's um, how to reintroduce something like that into the culture. Mm-hmm. I you know I I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, they say when my kids are young. Are they musical? I say yeah, they're musical, but they don't have time for uh, <laughs> you know you know you want to learn to play an instrument. You know to really play an instrument. You know you need a few hours a day minimum. Yeah. So. I don't know how you deal with it. I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> that's, that's why I have this podcast to figure yeah, out. Yeah, <laughs> my kids are all married, so, you know. Um, so it's, you know, I have, I have grandchildren musical. It's... Um, but it's really a question of the music that they hear and um, having the time to be able to really um, get somewhere with it. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's no... I think the only instrumental... Like Yossi Piment was sort of an instrumental um, model, I think, for probably a lot of from guitarists. Right. Um, I, I don't know of any other like in, instrumental stars who people want to, you know. But I don't know. I'm not involved so much in the scene. Maybe there are now. I don't know. But uh, no, I think I think you're right. It's very, it's hard to. I mean, I think if that this is if somebody has a sincere desire, they, they're inspired by music, they see themselves playing it, then they have to dive into the tradition. It's usually going to be outside of the, the Jewish world. And, and the message... And so if a person has a sincere desire to be connected to, to the Jewish tradition, particularly, let's say, in, in the Chabad context, where they're thinking in terms of Hafatzava spreading the, the spirit of Yiddishkeit, the spreading Torah, other places that... And they come into, it's almost like anything. A person goes to university, let's say certain individuals that have been encouraged to go to university because they're going to they're gonna influence a much broader population than just the, the Jewish world or the, just the religious Jewish world. So, you know, the, you know Tanya quotes that the Rambam talks about learning other wisdoms for the sake of, of serving Hashem, whether it's for Parnassah or whether it's to, to glorify the Torah. And the idea that a musician has to, someone who's, who's driven to music can, can take that journey, get into a tradition that one wants to write songs, they really go deeply into the, the songwriting traditions, the American songwriting tradition or whatever tradition that they're drawn to, and then come out with, with some real knowledge and real skills. Um, I think what I've seen happen is there's a schism. 
So either those, whether they're Balchuvu or from from birth, that they're, they're told if you're going to be a from life, you can't go there. That's not, you know, the, the, it almost like it needs to be a pioneer, someone who understands that that they're on a mission to to go to those things to, um, to not, you know, either they abandon the the the. the Traditional Judaism, or they abandon the music. I find that so often. Well, okay. So the question is, is whether or not they can, if they're not playing, quote unquote, you know, Jewish music that's acceptable, and they're playing mainly, say, um, talking about say the Great American Songbook. So they they write their own songs based on those things, you know, um, they you know they're jazz musicians, whatever. Um, you know, if they're really good, there's a there's a good chance that they might be able to get gigs that are not on Shabbos and uh, Yontav. You know, um, but it means making connections. And you know, see, I was very lucky because I had a scene in place as I was becoming from. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but um, I mean, the, you know, the, I mean. You know, there's certainly, you know, from a traditional point of view, dangers of, of playing in these clubs. But I, I don't really think, I think if, 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 if you have your, your wits about you and, and, and you know what, what's going on when you go into it, um, I, you know, I, I don't think it's, you know, I, I think you can, you know, particularly if you're married and you have a family, you know, it's... it's yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, I, th- I think that the conventional wisdom is they're incompatible. But if you look at, let's say, like a, a Chabad rabbi and his family goes out to a place where they're, they're the only religious people in the area, but they have a purpose in being there. Similarly, someone delves into the music world to, to really make a, have a, some, something that comes straight from the heart that really touches somebody. And they have, they're on a person on a mission, not necessarily an explicit mission, I'm going to go and convert people, but they have the idea that they're staying connected to their roots, but at the same time they're, they're reaching out more broadly because their music is something that can touch people. I think it's something that, that idea excites a lot of people who, who especially have repressed their own, their own desires for, for something, that kind of pursuit. And obviously not everybody is suited for that. And that's why I think it takes a certain courage, a certain maverick spirit a little bit to say, I'm not going to abandon either one. I'm going to, I'm going to, and that's, again, that's what this podcast is about, is seeing how can you, we, we do the best of both worlds. So, so the thing is, is one, whether or not, you know, like, what is your, your, your purpose? Mm-hmm. And, and if your purpose is to be a musician, then you have to be true to that as, as well as, you know, to your, your, your religious beliefs. Um, I mean, I always say, you know, a prayer, you know, I say, you know, I say, you know, and usually it's, uh, you know, in in uh, min, you know the afternoon prayers before I go out to work, that that the music I play should you know uplift, uplift everyone and and bring people close to God, and um, you know uh, you know that, that that the music will will be a positive force, but bring specifically people close to God. Mm-hmm. That, you know, and um, and that's in, so whenever I'm playing, that's in the background of everything mm-hmm. that I, that I'm doing. You know, and I usually give, uh, um, you know, tzedakah before and after I play. And, 
you know, and how well you play is, is in my experience, uh, is, is really, it's not up to you or how much you practice. It's really up to God. Mm. He'll, he'll, uh, that's, that can sound shocking. I'm crazy to people, but, um, <laughs> no, no, no. it's, it's, you <laughs> know, <to> it's really, <laughs> it's really, you know, that's my experience. Also, I've spoken to like Ricky Skaggs, mm. who's a, a, a sincere, sincere, um, evangelical. And he says the same thing. Mm. He, he'll, you know, um, so I, 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 you know, so I think if people are going into situations, um, a jazz club, say, yeah, there's going to be stuff there, you know. Um, but if 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 you know why you're there, and and um, you can, and your head's on straight, there shouldn't be a problem, and and. Um, you can make, uh, from a Jewish point of view, I don't know if, mainly, you know, like a big Kiddush Hashem, people have told me they say it's, it's you know, to see, you know, they're, they're very glad to see someone, you know, playing music, you know, you know, with the yarmulke and sitsis on and, and uh, you know, who's, 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 you know, playing music. I mean, it's, it's, it's it, um, it, it means something to some mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's, it's really a Kiddush Hashem. Yeah. You know, um, so uh, you know, I, I I think you'd be damn surprised that 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 in Chabad, the um, they some they don't form like some sort of like a series of house concerts and some of those. Well, big some people are put effort. So. You know, I think there's some initial efforts, and I'm I'm you know trying to encourage that to a certain degree. But I think for some reason, even though in the actual teachings themselves. The, um, it's encouraged to, especially the Rebbe's teachings, but if you look back into, there's volumes of Hasidus from the early, from the Alter Rebbe, the Mitla Rebbe, on instrumental music, on the power and the transformative quality and the, and the essential nature in our lives of, of great instrumental music. They, it's talked about yeah. at, at great length. So, uh, if you ever yeah, want to get to learn to, that. I would love to, okay. to learn with you. Let, let's, let's be continued. You okay. know, let's, you know, I've discovered since we last yeah. had a Chavrusa, I've, uh, you know, spent time looking into a lot of these sources. I'd love to share some with you, you know, and get your take on. Sure, whenever, you know, yeah. I mean, if you want to, you know, if you want to start after, after Yanta. We would after, love you know, to. Next, if you want to start next week, it's, you know, I'll, I'll do it. Okay. You Let's, know, we can, fi- we can figure this out. Let's work right? out the time. I, know, I, hope this is, I hope this is this good. Is, this has been amazing. Thank you so much, Andy. Sure, I really thank appreciate you. I'm, 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 been very generous with your time. And no, it's great to see you. I, I, you know, it's really, really great to see you.
That was the tune Raw Ride from Andy Statman's latest record, Monroe Bus. So it has a lot of Bill Monroe influence on that record, and in particular that tune, which is uh, seems to be a reimagining of Bill Monroe's Raw Hide. And it features Andy Statman on mandolin, Jim Whitney on upright bass, Larry Eagle on drums, Michael Cleveland on fiddle, and Michael Daves on guitar. So I want to again thank Andy Statman for taking the time to speak and, and share so much of his amazing story. And there's so much inspiration in the way from such an early age he approached music just with a real determination, a real dedication and awareness from that young age of really what it would take to be a, a, a musician, a professional musician, someone who can achieve great things in the music world. And it was a, it's been a path that's, you know, started out that he wanted to, his ambition was to, to be a Nashville cat. And he got, you know, that was already as a teenager. So then he got, you know, attracted by other things, the jazz that was going on and, and the klezmer and everything else. And it just shows that, that as Andy really points out, I think one of his main themes that he can teach other musicians, especially younger musicians, that I've uh, taken a lot of direction from him in this way is the idea of steeping yourself in, in one tradition. And in some ways it doesn't really matter what that one tradition is. Obviously, as long as it's something that you're really inspired by, you really love. And going as deep as you can into that, and that can help you build a foundation that not going to, instead of limiting you, which sometimes I guess there's that sense that if you put too much eggs in one genre, then you're going to somehow be limited to that and other things. But Andy really shows how when you take that approach, it can really be a springboard for um, pretty much anything else you want to do musically. Um, bluegrass is obviously a great um, art form to to focus on, you know, especially with the mandolin and Bill Morrow's solos and some of those great early mandolin players. It's very something that, you know, you could really um, build a structure around. And I, I find this, you know, similar thing in terms of my experience with, I mean, there's so many, so many different types of music that I've been influenced by that has influenced my music. And I would say I could, I could take a page even more from Andy's book in that regard. When I look at my own development, I look at the different things that I've taken deep dives into. I can't say that I dove into anything as deeply as, as Andy has or any, anything near it. Um, but, you know, I believe it's never too late. Um, the musical development is a real adventure, and there's always opportunities to go deeper, to focus more. Um, obviously, younger years are, are really formative times, so take advantage of those and uh, you know, continue to grow. You see Andy, someone who's continuing to grow, continuing to, to learn and develop his, his musicality, his skills. There's a lot of dimensions of music that can be cultivated. But when it all comes down to it, just keeping music in your life, that it can bring you and others joy, 
is a really important thing. There's a lot of forces in our life that would c- cause us to put that kind of joy, that kind of activity on a, on a more back burner. And in, in sometimes it takes a really supreme effort, especially if a person isn't hasn't dedicated their whole life to it at that whatever point, and they, they have other things going on distracting them. Um, I mean, even professional musicians have their their distractions away from music, but certainly someone who's trying to fit music into a major part of their life when they have many, many other responsibilities and things going on. Just stick with it. It's really important. Your music's really important. Just got to say that. Okay. So, again, I want to just thank our patrons. Go to patreon.com slash soundheightsrecords. Also go to soundheightsrecords.com. Check out all the music and uh, rewards, etc. over there. There's a bunch of new things coming down the pike, so stay tuned. Sound Heights Records, you can sign up for the mailing list if you're not already on the email list there. Also feel free to write me at soundheightsrecords at gmail.com with any comments, questions, concerns, anything I can do to help, please just let me know. And as always, remember, with abundant singing and playing of music, we bring about the true and complete redemption. See you next time.